You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for us to catch up with Dr. Chris Smith. And uh, he joins us now from Cambridge as we talk about science, your curiosities. There are already questions lined up for you, Chris. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm very pleased to hear that people are already, you know, as they say, fastest fingers first yeah. are on the phone. <laughs> literally, I suppose the, the, literally. The really big thing this week, though, I suspect we, we probably should open with is this whole question about um, the, the real seismic change in where the where COVID came from debate, mm. because hasn't this suddenly switched on again, where previously it was considered a conspiracy theory to speculate about the origins of COVID-19. Yes, now you've seconds, got the President Chris. of the United States saying, let's... Um, Let's have a, an official inquiry. I want everyone to give me their data within three months. We've yes. got uh, the UK Secret Service saying, well, uh, there might be a case to answer here. So mm-hmm. we've now got UK government ministers saying, right, we want the data on that. And um, and other countries as well are beginning to say to China, look, a bit more transparency, please. Uh, yes. Facebook now saying, you can conspiracy theory speculate all you like without us banning your post now, which previously wasn't the case. Mm, interesting indeed. And in fact, we've got a question from Joe in Kilani on that very question, on, in that very neighborhood. Hello, yes. Joe. Uh, hello, Zenia. Uh, hello, uh, uh, Dr. Chris. Hi, Joe. Uh, Smith, I, I just want to ask you, with regard to these recent theories which have emerged with regard to the origin of the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, as you say, there's evidence, apparently credible evidence coming from the United Kingdom to suggest that it had originated not from the wet markets in Wuhan, but from the laboratory in Wuhan. Now, what is the truth of the matter? And is there any way one can substantiate it? Also, the WHO conducted a very detailed study on the matter as well. And have they reached a conclusion in this regard? Hello, Joe. Well, let's start there with your most recent point about the WHO, because this was held up as one way we may get some answers. And the WHO sent a contingent of people whose entry into China was initially frustrated for a prolonged period of time for various visa reasons. And when they did eventually gain access to the country, uh, this was hailed by many as a staged managed puppet show because of various aspects of how these uh, meetings and investigations and various sort of scoping exercises that went on were conducted with very little time spent in some places. Uh, when the team asked for samples to be provided, they were denied on certain occasions. I, I understand that is still the case. And the WHO's lead man, uh, Professor Gabriasis, uh, has said, you know, there are gaps in our report. It's, it's effectively deficient. Mm. Uh, they acknowledge that. Now, on the flip side of this, you've got other people s- saying, well, we haven't got evidence for the smoking gun here in terms of when we found the origin of the last SARS coronavirus back in 2002 to 2003, it was possible by mounting expeditions into rural parts of China where there was a suspicion the disease could have originated to track down the bat host of that original coronavirus. And then it was possible to build a story around the movement of those bats in various consignments to wet markets. And in wet markets, close proximity of those animals to other caged animals led to a transmission event to those other animals which were much more closely related to humans. They were the amplifier and they led to the jump into humans and that's how SARS, the first outing, got started. 
What we haven't got, though, is a similar story yet for the second new SARS coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is um, what we're dealing with at the moment as the cause of COVID-19 disease. So people are now saying, well, we need, we need this data. Uh, there's no evidence at the moment this was cooked up in the lab, but there's no evidence yet for where that animal origin is, because although we can find closely related coronaviruses, they're about 96% similar to the human SARS-CoV-2 virus that we've got at the moment. Now, you might say, well, 96, 97%, that sounds very, very similar to me. Mm. But in genetic terms, if you were to ask the question, well, how long would it take for that 96% similar virus to evolve into the one that we're now dealing with in humans? The answer is that's 30, 40 years of natural evolution of the virus to achieve that degree of gen genetic difference which argues that what we found might be an ancestor of what we're now dealing with, but it's not the source of what got into people. Hmm. So the question remains open. And given that there are people who are saying they have uh, known, collaborated with and worked with the individuals at, there are a couple of research labs in Wuhan that I'm aware of, that were doing research on these coronaviruses, were manipulating these sorts of coronaviruses and they may well have taken the infection home with them without even realising it. We don't know. No one's saying anyone's done this on purpose. But what we can't prove at the moment is that it didn't happen. And that's where we really need more clarity, more support, more transparency and more openness from China, which has not been forthcoming. And other commentators are saying this is because many countries are too frightened to call China out because they know very well that China owns a huge chunk of their economy or owns a huge chunk of their labour market or owns a huge chunk of, of a trade market in a rare resource that they need in order to keep the wheels of their industries turning. So as a result, uh, very few people are willing to prod the hornet's nest. I know Australia have, and Australia have already felt the wrath of Beijing as a result of Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Australia, saying, well, we're going to prod this hornet's nest and call for an inquiry. Um, that's why I think now the fact that the world together collectively is saying, well, come on, let's let's see a bit more openness. Let's actually investigate this. I'm sure China, if there's nothing to see here, as you've told us all, then you'll have no problem cooperating. So it seems a mystery why you seem a little bit unwilling at the moment. I'm sure there's plenty of sensible answers and perhaps China will volunteer them now. Um, but I hope that there is some pressure brought to bear because we need to learn how this happened, why this happened and when it happens, if we're to stand any chance of getting ahead of this happening again and minimising the impact of, of the next one, because it's not a question of, of if it happens. It will happen again in the future, but it's all about mitigation and not ending up in the position we've ended up in this time. Hmm. Thank you for that update, Chris. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for your question. All right, I think uh, Joe is still listening on the radio there. Thank you for calling through. Patrick in Edenvale, hello. Hi, Hi Patrick. Hey, how are you? We're super, thank you. You have a question about uh, coffee? Yes, hi, Chris. Hello, Patrick. Yeah, I just want to know, when I drink coffee in the morning, the time when I'm passing urine, the coffee smells to the urine. But when I drink other drinks, I don't smell the urine. I don't know what's going on with the coffee. So when, in the morning, later, your, your urine smells of coffee, but when you drink what? 
Yeah, yeah, we're struggling to hear you, Patrick. I'm I gonna... think he said when he drinks other stuff, it doesn't smell of oh, coffee other or, drinks or what he's have. been drinking. Uh-huh. But when he drinks coffee, the yeah. urine smells. Yeah. Patrick, don't okay. make the don't make the mistake of drinking the urine though, because it might <laughs> smell like coffee. It definitely <laughs> won't taste like coffee. Uh, same with asparagus. We don't do that. Yes. Uh, the answer is that there are certain things which are in foodstuffs which are water soluble, and what that means is that when you drink them, they get absorbed into the bloodstream and they get filtered into your urine because the way the kidney works is that it pushes blood at reasonably high pressure through capillaries, which are tiny blood vessels, which are called fenestrated capillaries. And these are capillaries which are a bit leaky. They're rather like the irrigation hoses that you see in some people's flower beds where you connect to high pressure of water and little holes in the hoses allow water to spray out. So the kidney filters blood through there. The holes are too small to let blood cells and some of the bigger proteins in the blood come through but smaller molecules and water-soluble molecules can move out and then the kidney selectively decides what to cherry-pick back from what's come out to, to, to rescue. So things it wants, like sugars, which are important, some amino acids, for example, you don't want to lose those, you pull those back in, but other big stuff um, or just the waste water, you don't want that, so you throw it away. And if there's not a way of rescuing back some of the chemicals in what you've been eating and drinking, then they will end up in the urine and they will make the urine smell under certain circumstances of whatever that chemical is. And I mentioned asparagus earlier. When you eat asparagus, there are various sulfur-containing chemicals in asparagus which get metabolized into a chemical called methylmercaptan, which is the same stuff a skunk sprays out, actually. And it's why urine smells quite pungent after we've been eating asparagus because it gets concentrated in the urine so you have a, a big source of it all in one place and it smells. Um, why it, why your urine smells of coffee in you? It might be just the way you drink your coffee, it might be the coffee you're drinking, it's more likely to be biochemically you because some people oh. have particular patterns of absorption, they're much better at absorbing some chemicals than others. The most famous example is a, is a condition called beet urea where if people eat um, <laughs> Uh, what's it called? Beetroot. Um, uh, beetroot. <laughs> yeah. um, if they get red wee, and people then come running to the doctor saying, "I'm peeing blood," but it's not. It's because the dye, which is in beetroot, is absorbed because it's water soluble. It's not metabolized in those people, and as a result, it just filters unimpeded through into the kidney and then into the urine, and it makes the urine go red. And some people have this, and it runs in families, actually. So don't be alarmed if you eat beetroot and then do red wee. It's the same thing as Patrick seeing with the smell of his coffee. You're just filtering into your urine certain water-soluble pigments from, from what you've been eating. Fascinating. What about when you eat certain foodstuffs and then you literally can smell it off the person? Garlic, things like garlic. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, things like acha, well, which is a local, um, like a little preserved salad made with mangoes and lots of spices. It's hot. Uh, I tend yep. to smell it off myself, as in my underarms, if I, yep. a day later after eating acha. If you eat something and it can't be broken down in the body or it gets metabolized in the body to something even whiffier, it's going to go around in your bloodstream. And if it is water soluble, then it will come out with your sweat because the way we make sweat is just like the kidney squirts blood at high pressure through leaky capillaries and the small molecules like water come out. Sweat glands work in almost the same way. So you will produce sweat liquid, which has got some cross, uh, sort, of, sort of some examples of the water soluble with smaller molecules that are in your bloodstream in it. Not just sweat though, also breast milk. And you'll get a number of mums will say if they eat certain things, 
the baby is much more likely to be windy or have colic afterwards. And I'm sure there's a connection. You say there absolutely is. Some things that you eat get filtered across or absorbed from the intestines into mum's bloodstream. Breast milk is made as a filtrate of blood and extra things are added. But because it comes from the blood, the liquid part of it, anything dissolved in the blood can end up in the breast milk. And so as a result, the breast milk can taste and smell of what you have been eating and some babies love certain things some babies don't and actually there is evidence that if mum has a really broad diet when she's breastfeeding babies will grow up liking some of those things because they've tasted them already mm. before they were weaked because mum was eating them and, and strong flavors like cheeses often do fit that bill but it's right. not just uh, foods drugs will do this as well so one has to be cautious if you're taking certain drugs um, and antibiotics and things you have to be a bit careful if you're breastfeeding because some things can go across in the breast milk and they can get into the baby always worth checking if you are breastfeeding before taking certain drugs all right uh next let's go to ted in germiston hello ted hi hi dr chris welcome ted hi ted i have a colleague at work that is asthmatic um and coincidentally we're talking about smoking earlier yes he's asthmatic mm-hmm. and he can smoke a cigarette but that does not induce an asthma attack. However, if he does some lifting or walking, then he needs to take a whiff of his inhaler. Why is it smoking a cigarette doesn't necessarily induce asthma attack? Is something different in the lungs that cigarette smoke affects that doesn't affect the asthma? Where's the logic there? Okay. Thanks for the question, Ted. Mm Mm-hmm. Smoking uh, is irreparably harmful for your lungs and one of the things it does is to make your airways more reactive. In other words, they're more likely to constrict to various stimuli which can include just cold air. They also are more likely to constrict when you exercise and if there are things you're allergic to at a low level in the air you breathe in, if they're more reactive to those things, it needs lesser of them in order to provoke the same reaction. So although they're harmful, these inhaled things from cigarettes, in terms of damaging lung tissue, causing inflammation, causing the formation of things like secretions, mucus, which can block up your airways, they're also doing the fundamental job of of sensitizing your airways. And so part of the lung damage done by smoking does inevitably include an airway reactivity which does make people more prone to, to allergic uh, constriction of their airways, which is probably why when, when he then does some exercise, maybe it's the cold air, maybe it's breathing in things that he's a little bit reactive to, or it could just be, in fact, because the smoking has done damage to the lung tissue and the lungs aren't working as well as they should do to push oxygen into the bloodstream and allow carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream, right. the person becomes more breathless than they otherwise would, and they're ascribing that to being asthmatic so they take the puffer and all the time you're standing there running with your puffer you're not exercising so you're getting some relief because you're now not doing as much work so as a result the symptoms are going to go away so it might be that actually it's just underlying lung damage and being a bit unfit which is doing it rather than just it's it's the movement causing an asthma attack and smoking's okay because when you're smoking you're probably not running Mm -hmm. true uh here's a voice note take a listen to this hi Azza, dr chris um, back to the to the pungent smelling urine. Is it even worth drinking multivitamins? Um, because I drink vitamin B and I can smell it in my urine. So is it even worth drinking all these expensive vitamins, or is it just expensive urine? <laughs> mm, one 
Yeah. <laughs> one person put it to me. They said, um, spending money on multivitamins is one way to make very expensive urine. <laughs> and what they're getting at is vitamin pills are really pricey. And they, if they're sort of water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C, vitamin B, those are absorbed. If you are deficient in them, they get used. But if you don't need the excess, it just gets squirted down the toilet. Fat-soluble vitamins, a bit different. And people with definite or, or defined nutritional deficiencies, they definitely knew, need supplementation. If you're calcium deficient and you're at risk of getting bone problems, you need supplements that have some calcium in and some vitamin D in to make sure you absorb it. That's great. That's fine. Most of us, if we're eating a healthy diet, which has got plenty of fresh fruit and vegetables, so all of the food groups are represented, you are more than vitamin replete. And taking more vitamins is probably not going to help. One other exception might be women who are menstruating. We know that women who are menstruating can be almost on the verge of being iron deficient. And in some cases, if they're menstruating very heavily, they can get a bit iron deficient. So sometimes if, if you can't eat lots of red meat and liver to make up for the loss, a, a pill that contains a bit of extra iron can help to make sure that doesn't happen. But most of the time, we don't need these supplementary vitamins. So I would urge you, think about, especially if it's B vitamins that you can smell, green leafy vegetables are stuffed full of B vitamins. So if, uh, if you like green leafy vegetables, or even if you don't like green leafy vegetables and you don't like weighing money down the drain, eat more green leafy vegetables and you'll be vitamin B replete. Yeah, and save a little bit. Let's go to... And save plenty. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to Bongi in Reimsek next. Hi, Bongi. Hi, Azza. Afternoon. Go ahead, Bongi. Yes, um, I read an article um, and they're saying it's, it's the assertions of Luke Montega or something like that. I can't say the surname properly, but basically what they're saying is that the um, uh, vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine currently could in the future create a dependency on, on vaccination uh, to an extent that if you, if you can't uh, fight a certain variant, you would die because um, you use one particular um, uh, vaccine. Is, is there any truth in that? Chris, did you catch the um, question? Bongi, Bongi I, I did, and I'm very pleased to say that there's no evidence linking vaccination against coronavirus with any kind of vaccine, actually, and people becoming dependent on vaccination, either through some kind of addiction phenomenon or because we are at high risk of becoming susceptible to infections that we can't combat. Uh, there's no evidence for that at all. Otherwise, um, I mean, vaccination has, has saved millions and millions of lives over many, many years around the world. So the, the efficacy and effectiveness speaks for itself. Where this might be coming from is that people are concerned that if we vaccinate people and we don't vaccinate people quickly enough, the people who are not yet vaccinated, who are still infected with coronavirus and still growing it at high levels, and look at India right now, for example, there's the possibility that people there could produce new variants of the virus that could surmount the protection we're getting from the vaccines that we're giving everybody. And if that were to happen, we might be back to square one and have to vaccinate people again. So the obvious way to combat that is we try to vaccinate the entire world population as fast as we possibly can. And that's, that's where organisations like uh, Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, uh, is coming from, and COVAX, the initiative to try to share out equitably vaccines that uh, countries don't need to those that do to maximize the protection rates as fast as possible. Right. Thank you for that question, Bongi. And we're going to wrap with your question, Lauren. Good afternoon. 
Hi, Azalian, Mr. Tekras. Um, I'd like to ask for advice, please. My child is struggling with pretty armpits, and I have used that um, perspiric um, roll-on, Mitchum, lemon, nothing is working. But I must say the lemon lasts a little bit longer than the others. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. They've advised me to take him for Botox. For sweaty armpits. Yes. Mm. Any advice, Chris? Well, there is a condition called hyperhidrosis. Hyper meaning a lot of hydrosis, water, or in the case of a, a human body, sweating. This can be an inherited condition. It can also be a pathological condition, but it's certainly very disruptive for people who have this. They get very sweaty hands or excess sweating in the in the armpit. Always the best approach is to take the simplest, least invasive um, remedies first. Things like antiperspirants or, or more um, regular hygiene regimes. I know it's a pain, but that is much less intrusive than some of the other possibilities people do also occasionally resort to the use of Botox, the stuff we use to iron out wrinkles, because it can block the transmission of nerve messages from the part of the nervous system to the glands that make sweat. And this can produce very profound relief in people who have a very severe manifestation of hyperhidrosis. So that might be something to consider. It's not a totally off-the-wall wacky um, approach. They do sometimes do this in, in extreme cases for people. Right. Lauren, all the best. Thank you for your question this afternoon. Thank you. Oh, Chris, and just like that, our time is up. So many other time questions. Flies. We didn't even, we're going to file them. We always file them and turn them and put them <laughs> in a folder. Um, but till next week, your work is never till done. Till next week. Yeah. <laughs> that is uh, Dr. Chris Smith, our naked scientist.